Hey, you've made it to the Comic Syllabus Podcast. Thank you for being here and listening. Um, today we're going to talk about Why the Last Man, the comic, not the TV show. And we're going to talk about Shang-Chi, the movie, not the comics. Um, and then we're going to talk about some comics, sort of, uh, that are out on Substack newsletters. So thank you so much for joining us. Let's dig deep. All right, I want to welcome you to the, the podcast every other week at multiversitycomics.com where you can find comics news, reviews, interviews, um, previews, and poo shoes. Um, no, you won't find any comics poo shoes. If you're wondering what poo shoes are, uh, we have something in our house that we call poo shoes. I'm not going to tell you what poo shoes are. Um, <laughs> we are also at the Comic Syllabus Substack, which you can find linked in the show notes here. Um, or maybe you're listening to us through the Comic Syllabus Substack. It's a great way to support um, this podcast and my work. I'm Paul, by the way. I'm an English teacher and a literacy researcher and advocate. And um, so we try to think about comics here um, from all over the place and from uh, the perspectives of, you know, um, of, of folks of color, try to pers- the perspectives of um educators and uh, and young readers. We try to think about comics culture. Um, we try to think a, a little bit about civics and um, climate and things like that. Things that are of concern when we think about the future of young people. That's kind of what we do here at the Comic Syllabus. Um, and man, it's been a week uh, or a couple weeks because the school year has begun. I am deep in the the, you know, the work of teaching in my classroom. I also get to teach teachers, which is incredibly fun. Um, but we are all collectively as educators experiencing a reemersion, you know, the return to the classroom after what for most of us here in the California Bay Area has been a year of distance learning um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And our lives are um, very much different. Our lives are very much disrupted. Um, and sometimes a bit of, uh, of recognizing the the trauma of catastrophe, the ways that our communities um, have been hit um, and hurt by this pandemic, as well as by the fallout and, and all kinds of other things that have gone on in the last couple of years. Um, it's really been a lot to absorb as an educator. And I got to be honest with you, I am exhausted. <laughs> and so um, comics provides a bit of relief and a bit of escape, and but sometimes also it's just another angle to view these very real realities of our world. And um, so a few weeks ago, I initiated a, um, at, the, at the behest, at the suggestion, uh, I should say, of a listener. Um, I started uh, a survey, a poll, for what we would start doing here as known as the long read. We would read, you know, one of the longer works that's already been maybe completed, um, collected, and um, throughout the survey, I think I had Why the Last Man, I had Bone, and a couple other titles on there. Um, Why the Last Man edged others out, um, maybe because the TV show is coming, maybe because it has a deep fandom, maybe because um, Brian K. Vaughn and Pia Guerra are amazing creators. I don't know. It's a great story. Um, so it was fun. I'm glad I put it on the list. And, uh, I, and that's what we've been doing for the long read. Now, if you want to catch up with the actual deep long read including a a look at our reading schedule and so on and and if you want to hear future installments of this conversation about why the last man 
um, I just want to encourage you to surf over to the um, surf the inter information superhighway over <laughs> to the comic syllabus Substack because I will sort of weekly um, be putting out um, posts um, where you can learn, you, you can read about my thoughts as I reread uh, Why the Last Man. Now, today I'm going to be talking about the first two arcs, Unmanned and Cycles, and those are collected in the deluxe editions that I have. I, I have um, multiple forms of Why the Last Man, um, but those deluxe editions that have about two arcs per are the ones that I'm working off of, and, um, and we're starting out this week with um, the first volume. So I'll talk about Why the Last Man, uh, and then, wow, so the, um, the comic syllabus podcast uh, comes out every other Sunday at multiversitycomics.com. My plan is also for the podcast to come out a little bit earlier, a few days earlier on the Substack if you are a free subscriber, and then when um, a certain number of paid subscribers to the Substack um, hop aboard the train. I'll resume weekly podcasts, but every other week those will be available only to paid subscribers at uh, at the Substack. Um, but the uh, the um, the podcast is supposed to come out on a little bit earlier, but I actually decided to hold off this week because, in the midst of a very busy and stressful time, um, my lovely family decided to gift me uh, this Friday with a chance to actually watch Shang-Chi. We're a little reserved um, and cautious because, you know, unvaccinated daughter being under that age. Um, we we haven't been interested in going to a movie theater, but we found a drive-in. Um, <laughs> I haven't been to a drive-in in a very long time. We found a drive-in theater and I got to see Shang-Chi. Um, the drive-in experience, not optimal. I'll talk about that a little bit later on, but we did, uh, I did get to see the movie and man, that was a, that was a treat. So I want to talk about that a little bit later after we talk about Why the Last Man. And finally, a brief check-in on something that you can find out more details about uh, if you catch the uh, uh, comic syllabus uh, substack, where I'll talk about some of the comics that are starting to come out from that heavy investment um, from substack, that uh, Silicon Valley venture capital money going into the, the hands of comics creators to publish on these newsletters, um, comics. So we'll talk a little bit about what um, Chip Zdarsky is up to, what Jeff Lemire is up to, what um, James Tinian the Fourth and uh, Michael Avon Oming are doing on their substacks, as well as a few others. All right, so that's the the gist of what we're doing, and let's get into why. Um, why the Last Man is so interesting to reread in these times. Now, I, I should say I caught a glimpse of the TV show. I know it's out on Hulu. I think the first three episodes dropped on the on the premiere date, and then they've had um, one per week. So I'm not sure where it is. I think this weekend should be episode four coming out. But um, I've read some of the, you know, the critical um, response, and it seems middling, tepid. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess I saw, I watched maybe the first 15 minutes, um, and, I, and I realized that watching the show inevitably I was comparing to the graphic novel. And I thought, you know what, let me read all the way through again, because rereading it, it itself is such a, um, uh, like an interesting experience that I don't want to tarnish it with too much um, intrusion of comparison with the TV show. So I kind of want to finish this reread and then go back, watch the show and, and maybe comment about it. Um, if you have thoughts, though, while you're watching the show, and if you're reading along with us or not, 
um, please send them in. I'm curious, and I, I'm not too uh, spoiler-averse when it comes to the TV show, even if there are differences. And I've read and heard that there are some pretty interesting differences uh, between the TV show, ways that they, the, creator, the show creators have really tried to adapt and update um, the, the comic. Um, but I, I um, you know, I'm pretty much sticking to the reading. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Why the Last Man is really interesting as um, an artifact of where maybe uh, um, a certain edge of the mainstream comic culture was, and maybe a broader, broader culture at large uh, in, in arts and in, in media, around circa 2002 to 2006, which is when the, you know, around when the, the original series and the collections were coming out. Um, and that, as far as questions of gender um, and gender identity, that uh, as far as just um, aspects of what masculinity and femininity might mean um, or might be socially constructed as, uh, questions about uh, cataclysm and what happens when um, the catastrophic, apocalyptic, you know, uh, you know, hor horrific event comes and decimates the population. Certainly, we're not living in real life something as drastic as, you know, half of the world's population, all the Y chromosome carriers um, dying suddenly. Um, but we are certainly facing a cataclysm um, that is present and future in terms of climate. And also, you know, still reckoning, still dealing with the, the ongoing pandemic, COVID. And so I, I guess I, I'm reading, <laughs> helplessly thinking about how um, societies react. Um, in the first volume, for instance, there is um, an attempt by a group of wives of congressional Republicans to um, take back, I guess, the government because the Democrats who are uh, ascendant at the time, and of course with more women Democrats in Congress are, are essentially um, trying to govern this um, really incredibly difficult to govern circumstance. I, I should go back. If you don't know the premise of Why the Last Man, and if you haven't inferred it from what I'm talking about, Brian K. Vaughn, Pia Guerra, um, Jose Marzano Jr. as Inker, um, and, and a few other fill-in creators, um, released the 60-issue Vertigo title in 2002. And um, it stands, I think, as one of the latter-day uh, success stories in terms of Vertigo. It also is maybe the first big series that put Brian K. Vaughn on the map. Brian K. Vaughn, later of Ex Machina, and of course um, Saga, and lots of other, you know, um, brilliant comics works. Um, Brian K. Vaughn of the, you know, incredible teaser cliffhanger last page that just keeps you um, really wrapped into the stories that he creates. And, um, and Why the Last Man was, I think, um, an exciting book as it came out, just because it was so different. It wasn't superheroes. Um, it was a sort of, you know, near future sci-fi fantasy, apocalyptic, slightly horrific um, circumstance where, you know, half the world, all the cisgendered men, um, which it doesn't sort of take the um, conscious pause to recognize, you know, um, that these are cisgendered men. Um, but, but all the men in the world die in a sudden event. 
Um, all that is sort of set up in this very, I think, artfully structured first issue that if not for, again, that uh, uh, a, um, a slur for uh, uh, transgender people that just gets thrown, thrown out there, very reflective of, I think, um, some of the hurtful ignorance of the time, um, you know, is, is to me a near perfect first issue. That first issue of Why the Last Man and the way that the creators work with time and chronology, essentially to begin us at the moment of the, you know, the cataclysm when all of the males of the, uh, you know, around the world suddenly die and then throws us minutes, hours, just mere hours back in time to lay out all the chess pieces. You know, Yorick, who, it, who turns out to be why the last man and what, what he's up to, his shenanigans as he is, um, you know, trying to propose to his his girlfriend, Beth, who was in Australia at the time. And meanwhile, he's, uh, you know, hanging out with his, his monkey, <laughs> his capuchin monkey, ampersand, and, you know, working on his magic tricks because that's what he does. He's a he's a aspiring professional magician, which is, you know, sadly not a real job. <laughs> and uh, and we also, you know, meet the other sort of chess pieces. Um, Yorick's sister, Hero, uh, and a relationship that she is in, um, which, of course ends up in a, in a very hard place. Uh, it's with a man who, who dies. And then 355, the, um, uh, the secret, uh, the sort of secret service agent who is part of the Culver Ring, which um, comes to figure into the story later. Dr. Allison Mann, who is another um, major character, a scientist. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, someone else who's part of the Israeli Defense Forces and in fact, Yorick's mother, who's a who's in Congress, and so on. So we, we meet all these main characters in the first issue, and what they're doing in the moments before all the men die, except for Yorick and Ampersand, the monkey, um, and the countdown, the sort of beats that um, lead to the end of that first issue, where it really hits that all the men are dead, you know, and and every, and you know mothers are panicked and and. Um, you know, the, the, the streets are a mess and everybody's trying to figure out what to do. And then the um, just near perfect last page where somebody uh, who is a, a Chekhov's gun that's laid in the first page pays off in the last page and somebody, um, you know, content warning here, um, takes their own life at the realization of what's happened. And Yorick hears it out the window and, and you know, we realize that he is the last in fact, the last one left, in case you, the, the cover didn't tell you that. Um, but just high drama, and that first issue really, really hits you with the premise. Um, and I remember reading Why the Last Man, uh, not as it came out in single issues, but um, it was sort of post-college for me, and I, I was really interested in what comics were doing. I had taken a long you know, pause away from comics, um, and then I was kind of, sort of coming back and just really fascinated by things that, for instance, these Vertigo series were doing, and Why the Last Man was one of the intriguing comics that sort of pulled me back. And I remember thinking about um, the premise, um, <laughs> and though I was in my mid-20s, I, I certainly wasn't sort of like, ooh, what a swinging, exciting idea, being the last man on Earth and, you know, <laughs> chance to procreate with every, 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 you know, interested person in the world. Um, it was more the thought of, Okay, well, if sort of, you know, shorn away 
from all these dynamics of, you know, um, men in power and men holding the keys and so on. What does a society that is truly, truly, you know, driven by women, how is that rendered? How is that portrayed? Um, and I remember thinking at the time, okay, this is Brian K. Vaughan. He is a, a male identifying writer. Um, Pia Guerra is an artist, though, identifies as a woman. Um, and, and I was just very curious what this, you know, this creative team would be saying about what it is like, what it would be like if women not only ruled the world, but, but didn't have the, um, you know, the, the sort of presence of, of, of cisgendered men to influence, change, reference, everything, you know. I thought a lot about things I had learned when I'd learned about education, about, um, uh, about how the dynamics are different in non-coeducational settings, you know, in um, girls-only schools, for instance, or boys-only schools. And I remember even anecdotally hearing from people who went to you know, schools with only females that, that, that there was just a very different social dynamic when there wasn't the presence always of, you know, boys or guys around, even though it was in their consciousness and certainly like, you know, in their lives when they were in the school space, something different was going on. So I think the premise was, uh, um, really able to latch on to, you know, my curiosities about things like that and uh and that kind of situation so anyway i think that the um i remember reading through the whole series um i think i probably read four or five arcs of the series uh, and then waited <laughs> years until the rest of it also came out in trade and then reread the whole thing i think that, that was basically my encounter with it and there was something about the you know the the style of storytelling that I was seeing in, in you know, Brian K. Vaughan's writing that mirrored the kind of storytelling that I was starting to experience in catching up with, say, Sopranos or The Wire or, you know, all of these sort of prestige TV dramas where there's this, um, where they're definitely not just episodic. Each episode has within itself a kind of um, structure, you know, fascinating sort of, you know, 22 pages or, you know, one hour or whatever to tell a part of a story. But there were these arcs, you know, season arcs, or in the case of, of these Vertigo comics, you know, five, six issue arcs. And then there was the longer arc of the story, and it was building towards something finite, you know, it was so different from the superhero comics that I'd grown up with that were all sort of imagining themselves to be infinite and hopefully able to reach issue 150 or 1000 or whatever and meanwhile the um you know the the sort of way that you have embedded arc structures within stories was just really interesting to me at the time in just the way that it kept me reading kept me curious and then also i had the the pull of uh, you know an endpoint that it was heading toward and I think I remember just this underlying curiosity about why the last man of what will be the end point, you know, like just basic premise. Will why repopulate the earth? Will Yorick um, die? And is that represent an end? Will there be an answer to what happened? And, and how is it that some kind of um, virus or disease or whatever could, could you know, um, strike, you know, simultaneously all the men in the world or or whatever and and I thought that the um, the way that they they the creators made the story into 
this intrigue of of politics of groups mobs gangs you know after different things um, really really focused this global scale event on a few representative characters on York on 355 on on Allison Mann on the dynamics between them on the the mysteries they're trying to unravel what happened with Beth you know what's going to happen with Hero his sister and so on I just thought it was it was brilliant storytelling um, and I, I had a ball with it um, and I re- but <laughs> also remember wondering wow is this just terribly misogynist you know is this a terribly misogynist story um and one thing that i was looking for is whether or not there was um, a simplistic or single perspective on who women were how they might react etc and i remember reading arc to arc and finding that characters were understandably <laughs> and almost obviously otherwise it'd be a terrible story really inhabiting some very very different stories backgrounds um, and those identifiers like sexuality or profession or or whatever but also just really subtle things about how overlaid would be you know race um, gender culture class um, and just experience and personality and ambitions and desires and and, and fears and you know, are you the are the are you the type to be susceptible to um, an ideologue, or are you the type to hold fast to, you know, your loyalty to a person or whatever? It was just very really interesting the the kind of um, admixture of characters that were involved in the story, and then there was this very propelling, um, you know, momentum of the story, and in the first arc you can really see that immediately Yorick is you know sort of grabbed by um by uh, uh 355 sent on a mission uh, by the president you know to um to to get to the scientist and you know it's a little bit of, of mcguffining but we really you know throw them on a journey onto a train and then into a town and so on in the cycles in the second arc and and so there was kind of the, the that you know that propulsive momentum of the story to keep you grabbed and guessing um so i i think it was really f- um a fun read at the time and now as I reread it I can see a little bit more behind what grabbed me about it so I'm 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 seeing a little bit more of the you know I think seeing through the story a little bit more to the the understructure of how you make this grabbing kind of story and I'm also thinking a lot more about um, why why it was so important for creators um, like Brian K. Vaughan and Pia Guerra and Vertigo and, you know, Vertigo editors and so on to tell this story at this time. I think there was something that felt transgressive about it, but also felt um, somewhat, um, uh, you know, it it didn't feel like a, a, a woman-centered perspective, actually. It felt like a, 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 a still a kind of, you know, androcentric, male-centered perspective but on the on the complexity and the questions of you know a more complex post um third wave feminism perspective of women in society and there was almost something it wanted to say something it wanted to prove and yet it could not pull itself away from Yorick being Yorick and I I remember as a honestly as a mid-20 year old identifying much more with Yorick 
and now as a four-year-old just sort of being a little a little annoyed <laughs> at him you know he just um what was maybe perhaps charming and witty is now uh, with my better understanding of life and the world um a little obnoxious and um and and i think particularly um his avoidance of responsibility as a representative you know last male figure feels very like when you're a white man in 2002 this is what you can do you know the world wants to heap so much responsibility and rather than sort of facing that music or or you know being able to position yourself differently you can only sort of have a wry and satirical response to your own self uh and 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 yorick kind of is that he does that and and um it's frustrating and other characters are frustrated at him and uh you know i i don't know i mean if the story were told now i th i don't think it would quite be this way i'm curious how the the tv show handles this i know that there's the you know there's transgender characters um you know um, trans males that um are part of the story i know that um you know i wonder about yorick's masculinity as it's portrayed in the tv show now because i think the masculinity that yorick comes to sort of represent and and you know he's just one character so is he a stand-in for all of masculinity i think so i think he's actually uh trying to you know be a an a a representative of a certain kind of masculinity um that's very of that time it feels like to me so um so yeah i i just i'm interested in what the show will do with that because that masculinity to me felt fresh in storytelling in 2000 in the mid-aughts you know it it felt like a departure away from the i must prove myself or the uh you know tough guy of the 80s <laughs> the reagan era you know um uh sort of latter day cowboy um definitely also felt like a departure from the the anti-hero anti-heroes um it felt a little bit like a post slacker um yes i'm aware of the world but i don't know what to do with that kind of response that again feels very of its time um and, you know, in a way, I think, I don't know that pop culture answered the, that question so much as said, why are we still asking that question? That's still a story that's essentially centered on what should we do with the white man? And I think uh, in many respects, and thankfully, not having that be the center of the story or the question is more of what we get in media today. So I'm more interested in that. I mean, and, and what if Why the Last Man didn't feature a white, white, young white man um, at the center of it? Um, maybe that's what we needed in 2021. Um, the first two arcs of this book, I think, are structured uh, in really um, com compelling ways. As I said, that first issue is, is um, this marvelous, you know, countdown to catastrophe um and 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 so we feel this impending sense of the clock ticking toward that moment toward the now then the rest of that arc as we meet all these various characters um, really becomes a way to put a stake in the ground 
of there is not one story or one reaction that uh, when you have circumstances that are this terrible factionalism arises you know a kind of mob mentality may arise um people resort to you know some of the more desperate um aspects of who we are as human beings for the sake of survival you see that in in um you know folks finding whatever job they can get um hurling bodies into trash cans as a sanitation worker um or uh or you know we we see that in a kind of and and you know it's frustrating how thin this characterization is at the outset but but hero joining the daughters of amazon sort of cult and and becoming um an adherent to this uh you know very smooth talking um ideologue virginia who has this um sort of full tilt feminism you know um nature mother nature was w was sending a message that it was time to end uh, the reign of men and we must find this last man and um wipe him from the face of the earth you know and there's um all the different kinds of reactions that are represented by different characters that we see this newly formed band of protagonists come across and essentially you're mapping out all these different potential responses and i think in a time when we are now so polarized in our response say to covid um here we are in here i am in the bay area on the west coast masks are pretty taken for granted people are talking about mandating vaccinations for kids 12 and over um to, in schools um like in la unified and meanwhile you know I'm talking to folks who are out in the south or in uh, other parts of the country and they have the highest rates and yet there's a resistance to um to not just masking mandates but wearing a mask um the the, the common good sense to um protect yourself and others is become a symbol of our political polarization and you know i i can't help but feel as i read why the last man that what i read what i thought at the time was a bit of a gross caricature of the ways that we um assemble into you know clusters around common ideologies or just common simplistic perceptions of the world and i remember reading that at the time and just thinking eh, is that is that really fair you know like i would think that you know the women of the world who were left would be a lot um faster and smarter than uh, you know not having to deal with the idiotic men that they would be they would be figuring everything out uh, very very quickly um it seems that that in many ways they are in this series but what they're contending against is the factions the um the return to um you know the need i think to to cling on to and 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 hold on to particular identities 
And 2002, I guess I wondered if we were coming out of that a little bit, you know, despite us being in, you know, George W. Bush war on terror era, um, you know, deep, deep divisions. We were still not yet in Donald Trump's America. And, uh, and now I can't help but feel the burn on my heart <laughs> when I, I just say this is not, this is not even outlandish fiction. This is too, too close to our reality. Um, and then I guess I, I think the other thing that I, I, that's different about me as I read this now compared to back then is for this story to be compelling, it really needs to center on a small group of characters. You can't, um, you can't have that diffuse of focus. And I, I think, you know, they did a pretty great job of having characters come from very different walks of life. Um, going on these separate threads and eventually having their paths cross and relate to each other. And obviously why Yorick being the last man on Earth is important. And um, the character who is tasked to protect him and the character who knows the science to figure out what's going on is important. So it makes sense that they're together. I just think that our responses, our imaginative responses to these not-so-fictional near-catastrophes. I just feel this need for it not to be about five people in America. <laughs> I, I, you know, I want to see stories that are about people across the world and at different missions um, that are all necessary because I think the um, while satisfying narratives require us to be able to invest emotionally in a limited number of, of protagonists. I just think that the realities of the uh, crises that we're, that we're facing, um, I'm just much more interested in stories that are somehow able to capture a broader array of people's and actions and solutions or at least the pursuit of you know not everything narrowing down to this one person um i just want to hear more of those kinds of stories can i give you some examples i don't know <laughs> maybe it's still waiting for somebody to write um but anyway if uh any of this talk about why the last man interests you i um urge you to come and visit comicsyllabus.substack.com and check out the posts um, for the first two arcs that i've already uh, written up and join us read with me tell me what you're thinking as you continue to read and now we're wrapping up this week the second um, volume of the deluxe edition uh, up up to around page uh, issue 22 of uh, why the last man join us as we read and let me know your thoughts and um you know you can reach out to me um it uh, the email and and social media that's in the show notes or um through the Substack. stack uh, thanks so much for reading with me all right we'll take a little pause and then we will talk about shang chi the movie
Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. All right. Thanks for hanging out with us. Um, let me talk about Shang-Chi. Um, so as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I got to go see it. It was pretty fun. Uh, it was a nice treat to do that with the family. Yeah, we sat out in a in a drive-in. And um, it was cold and... <laughs> Um, helicopter flying overhead and all these cars kept having lights come on so then it obscure a third of the screen and um, you know it was um, it was an experience we went farther deep into the east part of the east bay than I usually when we usually go and on the way you know in the freeway overpass there were some people who were a small number of people who were holding up anti i don't know even what it was I, I can't tell if it was about covid response or if it was about um health but it was a sort of like medical theft and trump signs and american flags and you know people were honking as they went by i don't know if it was in support or or against or whatever but you don't see a whole lot of that in the bay area but we're we were in the part of the bay area where you do and um and while you know this this white guy in a big pickup truck almost ran me over and i you know, made gestures at him and so on. So, so that was part of the experience. Um, but nonetheless, I got to watch Shang Chi. Um, that was that was great. And I am like many Asian American viewers. Um, I am I'm a sucker for this. I'm in the bag. You got me before you even need, you didn't even need to make that great a movie. Um, but it was pretty great. It was pretty awesome. It was a lot of fun. Um, and if you listen to the last episode of Comic Syllabus, I talked about. Shang-Chi in the comics, particularly the the run that um, Jin Lu and Yang and DK run are on right now, and I'd heard things about the movie, and, and they were wow, gloriously true on the screen in front of me. Uh, here we have a reclaiming, a recapturing of what has been, I guess, you know, I, I guess I hear a lot of the, the commentary about it, and... Um, I think from the perspective of 2021, it's absolutely a painful history um, of representation for Asian American characters in superhero comics as well as on the screen. Um, and remarkable, you know, significant that an Asian American majority cast and crew and, and filmmakers and so on hasn't really been able to have a big budget movie like this and break through all that stuff. Really, really exciting. Um, and there were all the little pieces, and I can <laughs> confirm from my being a Chinese American that all the you know recognition that uh, take off your shoes and grandmas are like this, and you know you you hear this about from friends and and uh, you know the the, the little references, um, yes, definitely felt the sense of identification with that. It was fun to see um, an audience that wasn't. You know, I couldn't see much of the audience in the drive-through. Just a few people in the cars next to me. But you know, just to know that this broader 
you know, global audience was getting, seeing this experience that crossed the Pacific, um, included San Francisco, Asian Americans, uh, what they might be, you know, experiencing, talking like, you know, thinking and feeling about their own identity and place in the world. Um, and then this deep mythology, this, um, you know, martial arts and mysticism, this, this, um, this place that, I mean, you know, similar to Wakanda and Black Panther, is both real and, um, and imagined, but just because it's imagined doesn't mean it's not vital or deeply embedded in our hearts. Um, Simulu was cool. Aquafina was funny. Uh, Tony Leung was amazing, just as I had heard and hoped. Um, and, you know, no doubt, as you've heard, the rest of the cast, that is that is new. Fala Chen um, as Wen Wu's wife and, and Meng Erzang as, as, um, as Xiaoliang, the sister. It's just uh, really, really good. <laughs> really, really good. Even the parts, I, I didn't know how much the third act, and I, I'm not going to spoil um, too much, actually. I'm just going to talk sort of pre-spoiler, non-spoiler about the, the, the movie. Um, even the parts that I didn't expect in the third act, um, I didn't realize how much it would, it would delve into, you know, that sort of um, mythological and mystical dimension, um, was interesting, was new. You know, I wish I hadn't seen the trailers, to be honest, because so much of what's cool in the first, you know, first half, first third of the movie is is at least glimpsed in the trailers and if it was all new it would have been awesome and i should also note that seeing it in a drive-through and with all that disruption of lights and stuff like that i couldn't make out a lot of the action and that action is the stuff that really would make it um, uh, astounding i don't i think it's astounding i think it looked pretty awesome but i'm not totally sure um so the cgi slugfest that you've all heard is part of the third act and is almost stock Marvel expectation now. Um, that stuff I only made out about, you know, roughly half of what was going on in detail. And then the, uh, the some, some of the awesome fight scenes, I won't give away where they happened and what they were like, but they were just, I could tell the great choreography and I knew that there was, you know, smarts and wit um, because of the, you know, the fight choreography and so on. Um, being awesome you just i i couldn't see a lot of it <laughs> honestly it was just like a pretty dark screen with not a lot of great um backlight or whatever um yeah all of that was really really fun and really really delightful and i'm glad i saw it before all of it was spoiled for me um because little bits and pieces had been had been uh spoiled uh not just by the trailer but by the chatter that i'm continually listening to um, but I'm glad I caught it before it was all ruined. So it had a lot of freshness. Um, but I think, I, maybe you sense a butt coming. I think I still felt, you know, some of the um, the the people of color and particularly Asian Americans, um, Phil Yu, for instance, who was a friend of, of my wife's growing up, um, who uh, originally started blogging at uh, Angry Asian Man and is really a great cultural commentator um, on Asian American perspectives and, and in, in mainstream American media. Um, and others have been calling this rep sweats. You know, it's the, the concern that um, 
the anxiety around this being the, you know, the piece of representation. And if this movie fails, what does it say for Asian-centered um, uh, or Asian heritage-centered prospects for the future? You know, um, you know, you had Joy Luck Club, and then you had this ultra-long drought, you know, and then you have um, Crazy Rich Asians surprising us, you know, and then, and then, you know, this doing as well as Shang-Chi has in its first couple weeks and um, making big box office and setting records for Labor Day and so on. And really being um, very well reviewed, I think, um, solid entry into the MCU canon. All of that is really, really exciting. And I guess I did feel some of those rep sweats, the, the worry uh, that we have around it and then the pride when it does in fact turn out to be pretty great um but when i think about that i guess i don't feel vindicated i don't feel like yeah um i feel sad i feel sad honestly um i mean i think it's different i think the i think the world is different I remember when Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon came out in 2000 and we saw it in a theater and I was so, I felt some of that, <laughs> those rep sweats at the time, but I, I started to hear about what a beautiful movie it was and how it took, you know, the, the kind of, um, the wushu martial arts, the sort of fantasy elements of, you know, great, um, movies from Hong Kong and China and, and, um, the classical sort of you know, Chinese culture and, and um, that, that magic. And it put it on the screen in this gorgeous rendition, right? And I went there to the movie theater and I felt those things as I watched Chow Yun-Fat and Michelle Yao uh, on, the, on the screen and, and, and the beauty of that Ang Lee-directed movie. And yet, while I was sitting in the theater, there was a pretty big crowd of non-Asian viewers and you know again this is in the bay area fairly um dense asian population and when the wushu and the sort of flying through the air stuff happened rather than being taken by the magic of it they started chuckling they were like wait what <laughs> and then and then later they started laughing um you know this wasn't too you know obnoxious ignoramuses this was a you know fairly large crowd of the um of the viewing audience the non-asian part maybe even a few asians among them who were laughing um and and incredulous um to fit in assimilating with the uh, uh the viewers next to them and i remember feeling the letdown that something that made me feel so much pride it was the the kind of thing my parents would watch as a kid and i when i was a kid and and i would just kind of get absorbed into unwittingly and filled my head with fantasies and i would bounce all over the house imitating martial arts moves from jackie chan or jet lee or um you know all these um brilliant martial artists who are homaged in uh in shang chi and i remember feeling this deep sense of internalized shame um 
because of how foreign it was. And, you know, it wasn't that I felt myself to be foreign in that moment. It was that I felt myself to be so bought into a world, so committed to popular American Western culture. You know, by that time in my life, Berkeley English major, um, loved movies I had seen 90 out of the 100 AFI top 100 movies and, you know, whatever. Um, Could quote you Jimmy Stewart or James Cagney. You know, had read F. Scott Fitzgerald or James Joyce or um, Mary Shelley, Shakespeare. And for something so deep in my bones, when it is taken for granted by me to be put up there, and, you know, I, I wasn't even mad at the people who were laughing at Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I was... It was a kind of tiny despair that that didn't exist to a world which I had committed so much of myself to understanding and knowing. And I guess what Shang-Chi makes me feel is not so much this excitement and pride at things that I was now showing up in a Marvel, although I had that thought in so many... It's so much of the movie actually is is in... Um, is in undubbed Mandarin that, you know, me and my wife and, and my daughter can, since she, not because we taught her well, but because she's in a, a bilingual Mandarin um, program in school, we could understand. I mean, they were speaking the language of my, you know, my countrymen, my people. And, uh, you know, untranslated. I mean, it was obviously subtitled, but but so much Mandarin just left there on the screen in a Marvel movie. And I just kept having these moments of, what this is a marvel movie you know and and the, that martial arts that i know you know that cinematography that um choreography that i know that those cultural signifiers that i know those um jokes that aren't even funny to me because they're 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 already played out you know <laughs> like that's in a marvel movie there's something yes ultimately like liberating, vindicating, I, you know, that identification is powerful for me. But actually, at me being at 40, it's not so much the excitement around that that I feel as the exhaustion that that has not been in my life. I mean, I had feels at certain parts of the movie. I had feels when it was about, <laughs> you know, fathers and mothers and and. And, and paying tribute and, and all that stuff, devotion. But, um, and, and I certainly felt the the awe that my daughter, who was watching What If with me, except for the zombie episode, and, and, and knows a world where Marvel is so supreme, you know, so regnant as the dominant cinematic, you know, box office force that it is is now seeing so many aspects of her culture there on the screen. You know, it's like it was like watching Raya and some of those similar things. I mean, that stuff is astounding. But I can't help but feel my being 40 and just feeling exhausted. And maybe it was an exhaustion of relief. Maybe it was finally being able to exhale and say, 
something is up there now that is me and not just something that I am going to try to impersonate with utter falseness because I'm not white and I'm not black and I'm, you know. Um, so maybe that exhaustion comes hand in hand with a kind of relief. But um, I didn't feel relief. I, I felt sad. Um, if that seems weird to you, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I'm, I, I love the movie. I'm going to watch it again. Um, probably not in a drive-thru, a drive-in, <laughs> or a drive-thru. <laughs> um, I'll probably see it when it comes back on Disney Plus and watch it a million times and pick up all those tiny little nuances of those action scenes. Um, but I, I think I do have a little bit of feeling like, okay, I can die now. <laughs> this is out in the world. And maybe that's the, um, the best praise I can give for that movie. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, I don't know what's going to happen in this character. I think, again, part of that sadness is the feeling that, like, with um, every, even Yelena in Black Widow, I was like, okay, the comics went in these directions, and, and, and that'll be exciting to see. I'm watching this Hawkeye preview and being like, Kate Bishop, that'll be exciting to see. I, I know where they've gone in the comics a little bit. You know, the multiverse. I know where that, that can go, and, um, you know, we're, we're dropping hints of a future Young Avengers. Oh, that would be fun. I have an idea where this is going to go, and then Shang-Chi, I don't know. You know, what are you going to do? What what magnificent Shang-Chi run are you going to, you know, resurrect for the sequel? You know, there isn't one. <laughs> um, so, I mean, maybe that's exciting because it just means that the, the Ten Rings and, and this um, mystical world will find all these different ways to appear in fresh and new and unseen ways in the MCU. Um, but it, I think it's the simultaneous, I wish I could come up with as coin as, uh, as perfect a term for it as rep sweats, the simultaneous, um, ex exuberant joy that there we are on the screen and also a simultaneous deep sigh that, um, how much it means for us to show up there also just speaks to how long it's been since we've been excluded. Yeah, those are my Shang-Chi thoughts. <laughs> Sorry if it's depressing. I like the movie. Tell me what you thought. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll take a pause, and then we'll get into the last part, some Slowstack comics. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. All right. Thanks, Mike. 
um, and Greg. I, I'm talking about uh, Substack. The uh, comic syllabus has a Substack. Is a Substack. Um, no, I'm not a Substack. I just happen to be on Substack as well. And you can support the comic syllabus on Substack um, by giving uh, by becoming a subscriber. And paid subscribers get access to more content. And when there are enough paid subscribers, I will make more content in terms of. Uh, returning comic syllabus to a weekly schedule, all this for the sake of the sustainability of um, me doing this um, and it not continuing to make a massive dent in my time and finances without also pitching in a slight bit back. So anyway, if you are able to support our work there, I'd appreciate it. Um, and when I say our, I mean uh, mostly me. <laughs> Although you also, because you make this happen. Um, okay. So I want to talk about some of the comics that are starting to appear on Substack. For background, um, and if you've been avoiding the thing altogether, let me just uh, talk about it a little bit. Um, a lot of venture capital money, a lot of internet money um, went uh, through Substack to the pockets of creators. Um, lucrative contracts, you know, $600,000 this year. If you would just publish X number of newsletter posts and take the comics work that you might have done at a smaller independent publisher, for instance, or something like that, or maybe it would have been a comiXology deal, and publish them instead on Substack. Um, and so, you know, I followed the horde of <laughs> creators um, from James Tinian the Fourth, or James Tinian the Fourth, and Scott Snyder, who Scott Snyder is not so much publishing comics there, but um, but lessons as is. Um, Molly uh, Knox Ostertag, um, but uh, also uh, Salad and Ahmed, um, uh, Chip Zdarsky, Jeff Lemire, um, Don, Donnie Cates and Ryan Stegman, uh, a whole variety of creators who are now um, subscription supported on Substack. Um, Sophie Campbell is one that I'm super excited about. Um, and I've been following some newsletters that are on Substack by comics creators, uh, some who are for now still um, only free, um, but maybe have been um, tempted, um, have been um, teased with the <laughs> Substack uh, offer. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious to see how it goes. And I became an annual subscriber to almost all the ones that I knew about, heard about, and were available. Um, just you know, we'll shout out some of the ones like Mike Dawson's that maybe um, you may not have known uh, or heard about. Um, and, and so I decided that um, on the comic syllabus substack, which I started a long time ago before all this comics migration there, but didn't post anything on, I thought that I would start to um, write there and try to follow the comics that were showing up on substack. Um, of course, I failed to mention um, three world, three worlds, three moons, which is the giant project by uh, Mike, Mike um, Del Mundo and Mike Huddleston, and um, what's the other one? Jonathan Hickman, of course, <laughs> as well as others who have been slated to contribute as well. That one has been a lot of rev up and a lot of like behind the scenes stuff and a lot of like teasers and a lot of story ideas and a lot of. Um, Sasha head designs and, and Hickman-ish maps and all this stuff, but uh, not much comics so far. In fact, not much comics is kind of the disappointed verdict of a lot of people who um, 
I shouldn't say a lot. Uh, there is a small number of people in the commenters who are like, I started subscribing monthly. I was going to get, I thought I was going to get comics. And so far, you're just telling me what you're doing for work today, you know, <laughs> and been publicizing your books that are coming out that I still have to pay money for. And I'm gone. So, um, so it is, it has been a trickle of actual comics. I like the content that we're getting. Otherwise, I like the process pieces that we're starting to see uh, a lot of. I like the, you know, the, the thumbnails that are being shared. Um, it's, it's, it's all right. I'm, I'm okay with supporting these creators for a little while while the work gets made. Um, but now that we're starting to see some work get made, and I'll talk about three examples. Um, you know, the, the sort of practicalities of what this looks like and how we're going to consume this stuff um, are, you know, we, we got we to gotta see how that, that's going to play out. Um, hopefully we'll get some answers. Um, Substack announced at one point a partnership with Panels, which is an app that I think is only on iOS devices. So your iPads and stuff like that. Um, I do have iPads, um, good ones that I really enjoy reading comics on. And, um, and I, I have used the Panels app before. I tend to use a different one for um, digital comics that I get in PDF or CVZ form from Humble Bundles or publisher previews and stuff like that um, when I'm not reading Comixology, on Comixology or I'm not reading on the Marvel Unlimited or DC Universe Infinite apps. But um, they that partnership with Panels, I think it still has yet to um, sort itself out how it's going to work. Because what we're getting instead is we're getting newsletters. And for instance, Jeff Lemire's newsletter, you know, comes out pretty frequently and with pretty good content, you know. It's cool to hear some of his process pieces, some of his thoughts on on the industry, some of his previews of work coming out. Um, uh, but we're also getting Fish Flies. Fish Flies is um, an original Jeff Lemire written and drawn um, creation, um, serialized story. And it's coming out in the newsletter. But there's no way, I, I mean, Substack is kind of, um, it's kind of, its simplicity is part of its strength. And it's basically a news, email newsletter. And, you know, you can go to the site and if you're a subscriber, you get access to all the posts. And, and so we're getting comics, but they're kind of, you know, embedded in these newsletter posts and very, pretty tough to read. Uh, so for Fish Flies, we've gotten two, two issues, two, two mini chapters or parts of chapters. We've gotten Fish Flies. Fish flies 1-1 and 1-2, and each are about three or four pages. Um, so we're getting, you know, in our inboxes, three or four pages of comics at a time. And I think that the idea is there's going to be an integration with this Panels app and a way for you to just sort of like download or sync and be able to read it. And, you know, rather than reading three pages once a week or once every two weeks, you'll be able to actually just maybe accumulate pages and be able to just, you know, flip page through them and and read um i hope so because hunting down these posts in the on the their substack pages or you know worse yet in my inbox um and reading them uh three pages or or two pages or a chunk at a time a tiny chunk at a time is is uh is not so much fun to be honest um the work itself however is fun and i want to talk about three of the comics that we've seen um starting to come out one is Fish Flies, as I mentioned. Um, Jeff Lemire um, is writing and drawing this. And of course, Lemire's productivity is always a miracle and a wonder um, because there's Primordial coming out. And I think he's said in the newsletter, it's already finished, uh, written and drawn already. 
um, Andrea Sorrentino is on that one. And then there's May's book, which is also coming out, which is, looks really cool. And then all the stuff that um, Lemire is doing ongoing and or wrapping up in, um, you know, with, with Dark Horse and, and the world of Black Hammer and all that stuff. But um, Fish Flies is very much a passion project. It has a little bit of the Essex County vibe. Um, fish flies are a type of flies that for seasons at a time in the parts of Canada around Essex County, um, Ontario, from which Lemire hails, there's these swarms of flies that for a brief season just emerge on in, at, in towns. And so far in the few pages of fish flies that we've gotten, we meet a three, you know, kind of a trio of you know, early teens, maybe mid-teens kids who are going to a mini mart and on their way, they see this swarm of fish flies on the ground. And the, their, you know, the way they talk is, is the way that Lemire is able to capture just kind of like raw, you know, real youth. You know, they call each other um, unkind names and <laughs> dare each other to walk on those bed of fish flies. And so we're instantly into the kind of world of um, somewhat, you know, laconic, um, uh, Essex County type, you know, real people um, in, in a small town. And, I, and I'm glad to be back here with Jeff Lemire. I, I like the other work, the, you know, high fantasy and sci-fi of Descender, Ascender and all that stuff. I, I like the, the other Jeff Lemire stuff, um, even the horror stuff. Um, but uh, this really brings me back. To, um, to the Essex County, Jeff Lemire. So Fish Flies has been fun so far, all seven pages or so that we've read. Um, but again, like I, I hope we can get it in a form where, where like May's book, which just had so much punch um, in, in being a complete first issue, or Primordial, which was the same, that we'll be able to read it in, um, in more chunks together. Um, but speaking of, you know, this is what's interesting to contrast in this very, very early stage. Um, Chip Zdarsky on, um, on his newsletter is actually releasing two comics thus far. One is a continuation of Captara, which um, is something that um, Zdarsky did with uh, Kagan McLeod and came out as you know issues and then as, as a single image volume first arc um, years back and sort of you know set up a world but really hadn't continued the story. I'm not sure the reasons why they needed to pause, but part of Zdarsky's um, Substack announcement was that uh, he would they would continue uh, Captara here. And so we've gotten a little bit more Captara, which is fun. I went, I went back and reread the first volume kind of in preparation for that. Um, but Zdarsky's also doing a Chip Zdarsky written and drawn comic called Public Domain. Um, and this is really fun for me because, of course, Zdarsky, besides, you know, antics at cons and stuff like that first became known because of um the partnership with matt fraction as the artist uh you know zadarsky as the artist of sex criminals um and then after that uh what a like talented smart uh witty uh sometimes deep and soulful even writer um zadarsky is uh really showed up in a lot of other comics independent big two um, and so Zdarsky now, I, I really enjoy Zdarsky mainly as a writer. Um, but that art style that we saw in Sex Criminals um, is, uh, is, is still a lot of fun. And so we've gotten six pages now, two, two chapters 
a public domain. And what's interesting in here is the contrast between the this and the storytelling style and rhythms of Jeff Lemire and Fish Flies. You know, Lemire's Fish Flies it reveals a lot of character stuff in these small interactions and ways that um, very real characters talk to each other. But Zdarsky has a way of um, kind of interweaving aspects of a story and putting them out. And so in these six pages, we've established quite a lot. So public domain is seems to be about, um, you know, the first few pages we get somebody rushing home from work uh, on a subway. Folks are yelling. Meanwhile, there's posters all over the place of a movie, it looks like, of called Eminent Domain and a superhero, Blake Powers, um, who is eminent domain and then this uh, young this uh, young man <laughs> young man who uh, who who we saw commuting is uh, winds up home with uh, with looks like his his you know his mom and that's the end of the first chapter in the second chapter we find him going to the basement of his house where he sees a comic book on a drawing board a drawing table and um, flashes back to a memory of him being a kid and, and seeing his dad at that drawing table. Then his dad comes down, and it turns out his dad is the artist of this comic book character, Domain, who the movie is about, and they have a little back and forth about it, and I won't give away more than that. Um, but Zdarsky has this great economy as a storyteller in comics that he writes, and also is able to do that so well with comics that he draws and gets to combine them. I don't know that I've ever seen a Chip Zdarsky written and drawn comic. Have we? Maybe like a short thing in an anthology or something. But it's really fun. Um, so I, I'm really excited about Public Domain. And it has, um, uh, you know, a bit of that wit and satire that we're used to from Zdarsky. But also there's just a soulfulness and maybe even um, in Sex Criminals a lot in his art style. Something really kind of um, a little somber about it, you know. Um, something in alienation or wistfulness or whatever that you could see in um, in Sex Criminals that was maybe masked by all the, you know, the humor and stuff. Um, and it's just really, it's there. It's there. And so he signs off his newsletter with this um, second issue of, or second chapter, uh, mini chapter or whatever, of public domain saying, love, Chip. And uh, I don't know if he's joking. He's always a little tongue-in-cheek. Um, but there, there does seem to be a lot of um, heart into in this story, so I'm excited for Public Domain. I think you should check it out if you're a fan of Zdarsky's work. This newsletter may really be one, and we're starting to get the comics early again in these strips and drabs that we'll we'll see how it all comes together. But um, that's a lot of fun too. Finally, um, James Tinian the Fourth, James Tynion the Fourth. I really don't know how his name is pronounced, I've heard it both ways, um, but is par partnering with uh, Michael Avon Oming and um, Aditya Bidikar um, on Blue Book. And Blue Book Chapter 1, um, subtitled Betty and Barney Hill, um, is, it's, it's cool. It's kind of black and white and blue. Um, and Oming's art, uh, which I have loved since Powers with M Brian Michael Bendis, um, and, you know, sometimes better than others, like Cave Carson was awesome. Um, Oming's Dick Tracy was to me so-so. You know, there's sometimes when Oming is the artist and, and it's sublime and sometimes when it's maybe subpar <laughs> for, for the, the high expectations I tend to bring. Because I really like this style. I like this. I like his, um, I like the, the sort of potent simplicity of his style. But he really, really gets to employ it here with Blue Book. And what I like about 
Blue Book, which is basically this chapter we get so far is it's 1961. There's a kind of an older couple. They, you know, work hard. They volunteer at the NAACP. They're um, driving from a from a ho holiday in Montreal. They're they're going back home to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And along the way, they see something in the sky. Looks like a UFO. That's basically the setup. Um, I think it's a great combination of what we've gotten used to, for instance, in Department of Truth, um, Tynan's knack penchant for writing about, you know, conspiracy and mystery and unraveling um, these complicated subplots with a, a kind of, um, <laughs> you know, ominous um, conspiratorial vibe. And, uh, and, and, you know, like, that's pretty cool in, in the other comics, but with Oming's art style, has a really great um, kind of paranoid mid-century feel. Um, so I'm excited for Blue Book. And I think Tynan's, um, he calls it, uh, it's James Tynan the fourth dot substack dot com, but it's called The Empire of the Tiny Onion. Um, prom it, it's been a very, very productive. Uh, lots and lots of long, long posts revealing, um, you know, his... <laughs> his experiences working at DC and, and all that kind of stuff. But now that we're getting comics, um, I'm really, really excited about Empire of Tiny Onion, and I think there's others to come. So that's just a quick little check-in. If you want to kind of follow more about what's happening with Comics Substack, um, I just encourage you to check out the Comics Syllabus Substack, where there is it's a Substack about comics um, and Comics Substack comics. <laughs> In a typically navel-gazing <laughs> uh, way that I do all of these things. Anyway, thank you for joining us and um, join us in two weeks and uh, check us out on the Substack and check out Multiversity. And thank you so much. Take care. Let's keep reading.